If you have your Bible with you, you can open it up to the book of 2 Samuel. We are continuing in our series this morning on the life of David. And so we are going to be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. Second Samuel chapter 7. I'll give you a moment to turn there if you're going to follow along in your Bible. If you don't have your Bible or you're having trouble finding it, we'll have the, uh, the words on the screens next to me so you'll be able to read there. Follow along. Right, so once again, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read the first half of this chapter and then consider what we have to learn from it today. So in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, asking, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them, as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. So this is a major, major moment in the uh, history of redemption, as we call it. Whenever we refer to 
the storyline of Scripture and, and the overarching story of how God uh, works in the world uh, after the fall in order to bring redemption to mankind and his plan to send the Son and the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ coming again. Uh, with theologians, we, we call this the, the, the history of redemption, the, the big story of Scripture. And there are a couple of watershed moments in, in that story. You know what a watershed moment is? It, it's, it's a moment of turning or it's a moment of significance, a, a point that you can look at and say, this is where things really changed or where we saw something new. And this right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a watershed moment in the entire story of the Bible. Because here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in the middle of that, uh, of that talk, and that vision about God's house, what God reveals uh, to David through the prophet Nathan is that he is going to establish David's house and through his bloodline send a king whose throne will be established forever. This right here is where we get the prophecy, is where we get the covenant from God that through David's line in his household, there will one day be a son of David who will be a, a redeemer of his people and a ruler over his people forever. This is the chapter Jews would have been looking at and, and hoping for and, 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 and studying to understand whenever they were expecting the Messiah. And it is Jesus, the, uh, the Messiah, who is the fulfillment of this chapter. He was a son born of the house of David, who through his death and resurrection, his throne will know, has been established and will rule forever. So this promise from the Lord, this covenant that he makes with David, we have here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's been a lot of ink spilled by theologians over time looking at all the details of the covenant, but for our purposes this morning, I think it is best that we look at what is the main thing, right? And that, no, that's a good practice no, any time, but especially for, for us this morning, I want us to look at and consider what is the main thing, and here's a clue for you. Anytime you're reading the Bible, the main thing or the main point is, what does it tell us about God? That's always the main point. And so what I want us to consider this morning is what we learn about God from this covenant, from this passage here. What we learn about Yahweh, the covenantal Lord over David and over his people and over us. And so we're going to look at three attributes of the Lord. We're going to look at the Lord's wisdom, what we learn about the Lord's wisdom in this passage. We're going to look at the Lord's humility in this passage, and then lastly, the Lord's grace. So let's begin with the Lord's wisdom. We look at how this story begins. David has, if you remember from previous chapters, or if you're familiar with this story, David has, with the help of the Lord, subdued all of the enemies of Israel. He has driven out the last remaining uh, peoples and enemies that were living in the land that God had promised to them. Because you remember, God promised this land to his people generations before this, a long time before this. But the people failed to, to take the land that God had given to them. So for years and for generations now, they have been living with, uh, with enemies among them and with uh, foreign people oppressing them and, and driving them out of the land that God had promised to them. There were some high points where they would have victory. You can read about this in the Judges. And then whenever King Saul came along, there were some high points where it seemed as though Saul was finally going to be the one to subdue all the enemies, but he eventually failed. But finally, David has done it. And so this is why we have David. He is settled in Jerusalem. He is in his palace, it says. 
Like, man, David's come a long way. Hasn't he? He used to be living in caves and in the wilderness. Now he is in a palace. It says, all of his enemies have been defeated and he rests. So he rests in his palace. He's in a place of comfort. He's in a place of uh, really what, what rest means is security in his rule. It doesn't mean rest in the same sense of like taking a nap. It means resting in a sense of like uh, uh, as king, his, his royal obligations have been done in defeating his enemies, and now he sits securely in his sovereignty. It's similar to the kind of rest that you read about in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, a pretty famous story, y'all might remember it, God creates everything, okay? So God creates everything, and we read over the seven days as he he forms the creation that he has made, turns it into a home for people. And then what does he do on the seventh day? He rests. He rests. Now, does God need a break? Does God get tired? Does God need a nap? No. So what does it mean that he rests? Well, was it just symbolic so that it would establish the Sabbath principles so that uh, his people would take a Sabbath and so we would learn about Sabbath. Uh, no, it wasn't just symbolic. What it meant was this. After God had subdued all of the, all of the chaos in that initial creation, formed it into a habitable home for his people, in other words, formed his, his sanctuary kingdom, his house, he rested in his sovereign authority. That's what it means. It's the kind of rest that happens whenever a king sits upon his throne. And so that's what's happening here with David. He rests in his palace, and he looks around, and he says, he says it's not right. So, you know, even in the midst of all that, there's something bothering him. Have you ever been in a situation like that where there's something just kind of itching at you, like there's something not right here? There's something itching at David. He says, it's not right. It's not right that I'm sitting here in this comfort, and the ark of the Lord, you remember we talked about that last week, the ark was seen as the special place of God's presence. It, it, it was seen as God's presence on earth. He says the ark is still in a tent, essentially. The, the ark was still in the tabernacle, the same one that you read about going back to the Exodus. He says, and that doesn't seem right, that I'm here and my Lord is in a tent. And so he wants to build a, 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 a temple for the Lord, and the prophet Nathan says, go for it. He said, I think that sounds great. But then something happens. God comes along to Nathan, and he, he, he tells him in a dream and a vision, he says, actually, no. You're not going to do that for me. Now, here's where I, I want us to just consider this for a moment this morning. Here you have David and Nathan. They are both godly men. Uh, David is the man after God's own heart. Uh, he, is, he is God's chosen king. You have Nathan, who we, we don't have anything, uh, as far as I know, we don't have anything negative spoken about Nathan as a prophet. He was a good and godly man. And whenever they talk about, uh, in the short passage we have, whenever they talk about building a house for the Lord and their desires for it, we see nothing but good intention, right? It seems very right in David's thinking that, that how can I live in this palace whenever the ark is in a tent, Right? So here you have these godly men, you have good intentions behind it, and yet, despite all that, God comes and he says, not so fast. Not so fast. Whenever the word comes to Nathan in that dream, and God talks to him, he doesn't condemn their motivations. He doesn't say, I know what you're really doing here. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't condemn their motivations or their morality. He just, he comes to them and he says, here's the thing, guys, I have different plans. 
And here's what this teaches us. It teaches us, our first point, that the Lord's wisdom is greater than the wisdom of his servants. There was nothing wrong with, the, with what they were thinking. There was nothing wrong with their intentions, their, their, their motivations. It's just, it simply comes down to this, that God's wisdom is greater or was greater than theirs, which is why he comes to them and he has to say, thank you, but no thank you, in a sense, right? Like, I have different plans, guys, and we're going to work according to my plans. The Lord's wisdom is greater than the wisdom of his servants, is greater even than the wisdom of his greatest servants, like David or like a Nathan, even like Samuel. You see, this is kind of a running theme that we, that we start to pick up on throughout the books of First and Second Samuel. This theme of how God's wisdom is often different from, but always better, than the wisdom of his servants. We see it going all the way back to First uh, Samuel in uh, chapters 1 and 2, wherever you have Hannah. Do you remember Hannah, the barren woman, who was uh, going before the Lord, praying and, and pleading, weeping? For a child, and the high priest Eli sees her uh, weeping and acting this way. She, she, you know, he sees her acting in a strange way, and he thinks to himself, "Oh, she must be drunk." But no, it turns out she's actually just in turmoil. And she's in prayer. All right, Eli, he had his faults. He wasn't the worst ever, but once again, there was a deficiency even with him in his wisdom and in his knowledge. We even saw the same thing in Samuel. Whenever Samuel was told by God, I am moving on from Saul. I am removing my covenant from, or, or, or my, uh, my hand from Saul's household, and I'm putting it on the household of Jesse. You're going to choose one of his sons. Saul, uh, Samuel goes to Jesse's household. You remember Jesse has several different sons. David was the youngest of all of them. But Samuel shows up at the house, and he sees the oldest, the eldest brother of uh, Jesse's sons. He's a big, strapping guy, He's the oldest of the bunch, and typically in this day, you, it was assumed that the oldest was the one who had uh, the, the covenant blessings and the most favor put upon them. And so Samuel says, well, well, there he is, the Lord's anointed. And even God has to come to Samuel, one of the greatest of his prophets, and say, no, 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 not so fast, Samuel. I want you to go to the, the, the runt out there in the fields. That's my chosen one. It's this running theme that we see throughout the books, and that we even see here in David and Nathan, that even among his, his best and brightest, even among his uh, most godly servants and his most well-intentioned servants, even still, his wisdom is greater than theirs. Every servant of the Lord, regardless of their motivations and their efforts, still have their deficiencies. And what this teaches us is this, that since God's wisdom is always higher than his servants, and that since uh, the kingdom ultimately operates according to God's wisdom and not David's or Nathan's or Samuel's or anyone else's, that the kingdom of God's security does not come by human hands, but instead it, the security of the kingdom of God comes by God's hand because his wisdom is higher and he ultimately remains in control. The kingdom of God's security does not come by human hands, no matter how godly or well-intentioned those hands might be. Even his finest servants have their deficiencies. Here's what this means for us as we consider how God's wisdom is always higher than man's and how it's even always higher than the, the greatest of Christian servants we might look at. What this means for us as we consider it is that we ought to seek the wisdom that Jesus gives us. Jesus is the, 
the perfect representation, the perfect manifestation of God's wisdom. And what we learn throughout the Bible, and I'm gonna, and I'll read you from the New Testament, is that uh, that we can receive wisdom from God through Jesus. In James chapter one verse five, James wrote to them. He said, "Now if any of you lacks wisdom, so hint, that's everybody. That's a nice way of saying, hey, all of you, listen up." He says, "Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously." And ungrudgingly, isn't that good news? And it will be given to him. Therefore, since God's wisdom is always higher than ours, we ought to seek the wisdom that the Lord gives. This is a good reminder because it can be uh, frequently very tempting for us to slide into this way of living where we just quit acknowledging the Lord's wisdom and we we, we quit seeking the Lord's wisdom. This is especially the more dangerous, friends. Hear this closely. This is especially the more dangerous the longer that you are a Christian. Whenever you first become a Christian, you might be very aware of your need for God's wisdom because you feel there's so much new, right? Maybe there's so much in in Scripture that you need to learn and and, and come to understand or about theology or about who God is or what it means to live as a Christian. And so you're very aware of that need. But over time, as you grow in learning and as you grow in knowledge, it can be very tempting to start to slide into feeling confident in your own theological competency or your own biblical literacy, for, especially for those who serve in ministry. Whether you're a pastor, someone who, who preaches the word or you serve in ministry in any other role down to being a volunteer, it's very easy to start doing all those things in your own strength, especially the more experience that you get. To start just doing it in a sense, without the help of the Holy Spirit, because, oh, well, I got this. I got the experience. But we must always seek that wisdom which comes from above, as it says in Scripture, the wisdom which comes from the Lord. Because no matter how well-intentioned we might be in our plans, sometimes God's plans are different, but they're always better. They're always better, even if it might not seem like it in the moment. In our own personal lives, we ought to seek the wisdom that Jesus gives us. Something else that this teaches us, just as kind of like another, as a sub-application, I'll say, is that this should also help us remember that we should not deify our Christian heroes. We should not deify our Christian heroes and remember that all of them, all of the best of them, whether it's your, your favorite preacher uh, that, on the internet or whether it's, it's, it's a family member or someone that you know personally that's just a hero to you. We must always remember that, that they're just people. And even the most godly of them have their deficiencies, have their weaknesses. Even the wisest and most intelligent among Christian heroes have their deficiencies. And so we ought to be careful to not deify any of our heroes. And even David in Scripture, and understand, sometimes they, they got things wrong. Sometimes they misunderstood. Sometimes their plans, though they weren't bad, were just off course. And so, always check what our heroes say against what the Lord's wisdom says. So we learn about the Lord's wisdom, but then we learn about its humility. Because why won't God allow David to build him a house? Why won't the Lord allow David to build him a house? Consider the reasoning 
that God gave to Nathan to give to David. This is what God explains to him. He says, from the time, this is in verse 6, he says, from the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now, he goes into more explanation, but I just want to meditate on that explanation that he gives there, okay? Here's what he says. He says, for all of my people's history, they have been moving around. He said, whenever they were in Egypt, they, that was not their home. It was not a place where they had rest, like David could rest now, right? He says, I was with them in Egypt, and I moved around with them whenever they were moving around with them, and even now while they are here, I am still with them. You get this idea in, in, in what, if you meditate on it, you get this idea in what God says here to David. He says, you know, my people have been moving, and I have been with them. Whenever they were in Egypt, I was with them. Whenever they were in the wilderness, I was with them. As they have been uh, fighting against their enemies here, even in the promised land, I have been with them. He says, while they were in tents, I was in a tent. What is God saying here? God is saying that as long as his people did not have a home, he was not satisfied with having a home. God explains to Nathan that he has never asked for a dwelling place because he would rather always be on the move with his people. He is more concerned with building a dwelling place for them than he is with having them build a dwelling place for himself. That's what he says. He says, I've been on the move with them, and did I ever ask for a dwelling place? And then as he goes on to explain to David more so, he says, no, instead, he says, I'm building a house for you. I'm building a house for you, and I'm building a house for my people. This is what the Lord is most concerned with. And here we get a glimpse, if we can read through the words and and ask the question of, okay, this is what God says, but what does it reveal to us about the Lord? What 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 do these words and these intentions show us about God's heart? They show us, well, we can say a lot of things, but they show us an incredible humility. Here is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign God, king over all, right? But he's not concerned with a, with a palace for himself. He's not concerned with a beautiful temple or dwelling place for himself. Instead, he is vastly more concerned about being with his people where they are. That shows us the humility of our Lord that he would condescend down to such a level, but not consider that condescension something beneath him, but as something that he would willingly embrace for the joy of being with his people. Is there any other God who has that kind of humility? Friends, are there there even many human leaders? Are there there, uh, leaders among men throughout history or today who would condescend themselves that much, much less any deity. But the Lord has that kind of humility. And so the second thing we learn, the Lord's humility is a blessing to his people because he desires to be with them, and in his presence there is blessing for his people. We learn this in the story of the Ark of the Covenant, 
how uh, they how whenever the ark had stayed at this other man's house, how while it was there, there was blessing and there was flourishing and there was all of these great things happening in that house. So they bring it into Jerusalem with great joy because God's blessing, I mean, God's presence is a blessing to his people, but it is also a blessing to his people because of this. What God says to David, he says, David, and David knows this, he says, I'm the one who gave you rest from your enemies. I'm the one who defeated your enemies, who drove out everyone from before you so that you could rest. And he's telling him, I I want to give the same thing to the people. Even David's blessing was so that he would be a blessing to the people. That is God's ultimate intention. And so why, what do we see in God's humility and why is it a blessing? Because he wants to be with them and he says, "And, and through my presence, I want to give them rest. I want to give them blessing. And we can see the same humility in Jesus Christ. We see it in in, uh, Philippians chapter 2, whenever Paul talks about the mindset that Jesus had, that he took on the form of a servant, right? And that he was humble. Jesus himself also described his heart as humble in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus uh, said, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. In other translations, it says, for I am lowly and humble in heart. The only passage in all the Bible where, uh, where Jesus says, here's what my heart is like. Here's what my character is like. And so in the only place that Jesus dis- dis- uh, decides to self-disclose what his innermost nature is, what does he say? Not powerful. He says, but gentle and lowly in heart, or humble. That word that he, that he uses for lowly or for humble is the same kind of word elsewhere in the New Testament that would have been used for those who were, uh, were of very low status in, in society, right? For, 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 so in other words, for like the lowly, that's why it's translated lowly. This is how Jesus describes himself. Not high and above you, but but lowly and accessible among you. And we see the same thing in the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, I am not concerned about a dwelling place for myself because I will be with my people. What this means for us as we consider the Lord's humility and Jesus' humility, calling himself lowly and humble, is it should cause us to then turn and look at our own hearts and say, if we were to have to summarize what is the nature of our heart, and what is our character, and what comes most natural to us, if we were to summarize it in one or two words, for how many of us would it be humble? I'm afraid that for many of us, and I can say honestly for myself, that humble would probably not come up. Instead, we very often struggle with the opposite of humble, which is pride, right? We, 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 we resist seeing ourselves as lowly and identifying with anyone in our society that we might see as lowly and instead like to see ourselves as high and above others, right? We might see ourselves uh, as high and above others through our socioeconomic status. We might look to the success around us in our careers or, or in the possessions that we have and use those things to look down on others. Sometimes we look down on others through our moral goodness, and we look at all of our, uh, not uh, material accomplishments, but our moral accomplishments. 
and we see how good we are, and we see how much we have learned, and we, or maybe we look at our theological knowledge and say, ah, yes, because we have it so right, that that then turns into something that we use to look down on others. How many of us can really identify with Jesus? And like I said, what is most natural to his heart is it most natural to ours? Like I said, I'll confess, it is not at all for me. It's something that I need an incredible amount of work on. It, the Lord's humility here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'd much rather identify with David in his palace than I would the Lord in his tent. I'd much rather identify with, with the kings of the earth that we see in history who are powerful and feared than with King Jesus who calls himself lowly and humble. And that manifests itself in all these different ways in my life. You know, so often the conflicts that we see between ourselves and others in our life is, goes back to this sin and this issue here, which is pride. And we want to be a King David rather than a, a King Jesus. We want to have the world and the people around us re- revolve around us and our kingdom and our desires and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, and uh, add to our glory rather than being lowly and humble. How many of the conflicts that you've had in your life boil down to that? Pride. How often is it that maybe it's not a conflict with another person, but it is just the, the struggles that you are having in your own spiritual walk or the struggles that you are having in your life as your plans don't go your way or as maybe you don't get the recognition for something that you thought you deserved and the kind of uh, uh, praise from people that you think you ought to have. Your reputation is not seen as you think it should be seen. And so, so often we go through inner turmoil. We go through anxiety. We, go through, we, we get ourselves all stressed out. Or maybe we start to wrestle with God and doubt him and be bitter towards him because he's not making things go our way. Where at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is just that our pride was wanting to be fed. Not that we saw ourselves as a servant of others, or that we saw uh, our life revolving around the Lord's, but instead we tried to make everything else in the world revolve around us. Repent from the pride that does not look like Jesus. Repent from the pride, moreover, that puts a barrier between you and Jesus. Because he is lowly and humble, and he receives those who would be so humbled as to go and take this lowly and humble king as their Lord. So we learn about the Lord's wisdom, his humility, and we learn about his grace. As we read through this first part of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we get this insistence from God. And in each of the three major paragraphs, he says something along the lines of, like, like did I ever ask you to build me a house, right? Who are you to think that you're going to build me a house. He is insistent on this. He says, I will be the house builder. He says that he will build the house and he will give David and the people their rest. Because like I said before, as godly as as David is and as well-intentioned as we can see from this passage that, that his intentions were, right, as good as it all seems, at the end of the day, David had a desire to build a house for the Lord and to give the Lord rest. 
But God comes to him, and he has to correct his thinking here. He says, David, you are not the one who gives me rest. He says, instead, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to give you, and I'm going to give my people rest before we will be concerned about building a house for myself. This is what we call grace. A gift from God that David didn't deserve. The only, do you know why David gets this? Do you know why he, he receives this gift of, of having a house built for him by the Lord and a name that will establish a throne and a line forever? Do you know why he got any of that? It's not because he was any more special than you or I. It's not because he was any better than you or I, uh, morally or in righteousness. It's not because he did anything to earn it. It is only because of this, because God chose David as his instrument of blessing. That's it. The gift was given on the basis of God's choosing. So because God chose to uh, make David the recipient of his blessing... He is going to be faithful to his word and to his promise that he will bless David. And so he says, I will build your house and through you give rest to my people. This is what we call the grace of God, that David did not do anything to earn it. There's nothing special in and of himself to get the gift. He only receives it because God chose to give it to him. Friends, any gift of God that we receive, and and moreover and above anything else, the gift of God's grace of salvation, that we might be freed from our sin. We do not receive it because we do anything to earn it. There's no amount of cleaning yourself up. There's no amount of ordering your life that you can do to earn the gift of God's forgiveness of your sin. That, the gift of salvation, that grace, there's nothing to do to earn it. And you don't have to be from a certain kind of background. You don't have to be from a certain kind of family or a certain type of person to get the gift. Uh, you do not have to uh, prove anything special. It is not just for a certain class of people. It is only because of this, because God chooses to give it to you. Because in his love, because in his grace and mercy that, he, that no one forces him into other than in his love he chooses to do it, that is why you receive it. And that is why David receives it receives the grace of God. The last thing that we see in, in the Lord through the story is his grace, and that the Lord's grace is the gift of rest for the weary. That is what he gave to David, who was weary through his, through his battles and through his struggles. He gives him rest, and he says that he's going to do the same thing for his people as he drives out all of their enemies, and he promises to give the same thing to you and I. Why? Like I said before, because he is gracious. And because he is loving, he decides to give it to us. But what does it mean? Once again, in Matthew 11, in verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What does that mean, and why is that good news to us? In the, in the last paragraph of what God says to Nathan in this story, he says to him that I'm going to bring up someone from your bloodline, right? And he says, he, I will be his father, and he will be my son. He says, and my love 
will never depart from him like it did from Saul. This is an unconditional covenant that God is entering into with, with David and with his bloodline. Now, we have to think, we can't think simply here. We've got to think with a little bit of complexity. Because whenever God is saying this to David, he's speaking in two senses. In one sense, he's speaking of David's literal descendants, uh, and, and especially his descendant uh, Solomon. <laughs> the name left my mind for a second. He's talking about Solomon. Because he says, whenever he does wrong, I'm going to discipline him right. So he's not just talking about Jesus, because Jesus never did any wrong. So he's speaking in two senses here. And would David had understood, could David or any of the people at that time could have possibly understood that God was talking about Jesus? No, they would have assumed that he was talking about his blood, uh, David's sons. So in a sense, he is. He is talking about David's sons, but he is also speaking in a higher sense, pointing forward to Jesus. Anytime we read prophecy, especially concerning Jesus, we need to always understand that it's working in these two senses where he's speaking to them in their situation, but also in a higher sense towards what he plans on doing in the future, okay? And so here's what he says in in terms of what he's doing now and what he's doing in the future. He says, my love will never leave him. My love will never leave him. What does that mean for Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus that God's love would never leave him? Because Jesus was God's son, and he was perfectly righteous. So why would there be any reason for his love to leave his son? Because on the cross, because on the cross, we learn that Jesus became a curse on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus did not go and hang there, still in his perfect righteousness, but instead what the New Testament tells us is God placed upon him his judgment for our sin. Jesus, who in his life was perfectly righteous on the cross, took on our sinfulness. He took on our, our impurity. And with that, he took upon himself the curse of, of God that we deserved. That's what Paul means in Galatians, where he, he talks about Jesus and he says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took that curse upon himself. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, For he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Jesus on the cross took on our sin, but because he willingly took on our sin in our place as a perfect substitute. Three days later, God the Father raises him from the grave, proving his words in 2 Samuel chapter 7 true, that his faithful love would never leave his servant. And so even whenever Jesus takes upon himself the curse for our sin, and he takes upon himself our, our, our sinfulness, our impurity, and he takes upon himself the consequences for our sin, God's love would never leave him, as proven in that he did not abandon him to the grave. But God's love is proven for, for, for his son Jesus and proven for David and his descendants and proven for all who would be in Jesus and that he raises him from the grave. Proving that his love will never leave him and his throne will endure forever. So now what does that mean for us? It means that since God's love never left Jesus and did not abandon him in that grave, That Jesus' invitation to us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, is an invitation to you and I to enter into that love. 
Who could have imagined? In, in David's wildest dreams, did, did he think that this is what God was doing? That through his covenant with him and his promise for his faithful love to never leave David's sons, that he was opening up an invitation that will one day be extended to all the world, to Jews and Gentiles, and to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and to every person from every background, from whether they are good or bad or moral or sinful, opening up the invitation to all that through his son, through, who had never lost his faithful love, that we might enter into that faithful love. But this is what Jesus invites us into, where he says, come to me, and I will give you rest. What this means is receive the rest that Jesus gives. Receive his rest. The Lord swore that he would give David and his people rest from their enemies. What does that mean? What it means is, is, is it means he, was, he swore that he would give them security from that which threatens their well-being, right? They had enemies who wanted to come in and overtake them, who wanted to oppress them, pillage them, and so on. So God driving out their enemies and giving the rest from them means what? So he's going to give them security from them. The rest that we are offered in Jesus Christ is a rest which is greater security from anything that any uh, man could threaten us with. It's security from that greatest thing which threatens our well-being, and that is sin. The rest that Jesus gives us when he says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls is the rest from the burden of sin. Have any of you come here this morning burdened and weary? And this applies to you if you're already a Christian. Even if you're already a Christian, a believer, you might have come in here this morning burdened and weary. You're worn down by the fight with sin. You're burdened with the weight of, your, of how powerfully your flesh still operates, right? Disappointed maybe with your, with your discipleship this past week, maybe, or this past month, or however long, and, and the ways that you have failed your Lord, and the ways that you know you have grieved the Holy Spirit. And so you've come in burdened. Your worship has been held back, Right? Your, your heart has been guarded from opening up to the Holy Spirit because you're afraid of what he will reveal. But hear what Jesus says. Come to him. Why? Because of what he says about his heart. He says, for it is lowly and humble. He is gentle. Maybe you've never experienced that rest and you need to for the first time today. You are aware of your sinfulness before the Lord that you have not lived as he, as he has called you to, and that as you stand today, you are under his judgment. If you, were to stand, if you were to go before his throne, you would hear the verdict of guilty. If that is you, let me encourage you as well. Receive the rest that Jesus gives. He joyfully took on the cross. In humility, he took on the shame that was required, the condescension that was required so that he might achieve redemption for you. He took on your sin, and in his death, he dealt with it once and for all eternity so that if you now come to him and receive his rest, there will never, ever, ever be any word of condemnation brought, to, brought against you by heaven or earth because the Lord of all 
who has chosen to place his grace upon you, has declared you righteous. That is available to you today. You don't have to clean yourself up, like I said before. You don't have to achieve anything. You just have to come to him with open hands and receive that gift. Let me encourage all of us this morning. Receive that gift that Jesus gives and rest with his easy and light yoke. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we, we thank you for what you show to us and reveal about us here in your word. Lord, how you show us your wisdom, which is so greater than ours. Your wisdom, which confounds us and how much higher it is. Could David and Nathan ever have dreamed of what you were doing in this passage, Lord, in, in this covenant? But Father, you show in your, in your wisdom, your humility, and your grace. And Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand that, that humility and grace and to open our hearts to receive that gift that you give us of freedom from our sins, of rest for our souls, and that you would, in your loving kindness, draw us close to your heart. Lord, let us experience today, whether it is those seasoned saints or whether it's someone for the first time, let us experience today what it, what it feels like and what it means to come close to your heart, to have our burdens lifted and to take on the yoke which Jesus offers us, one which is, though our sin was heavy and weighty, Jesus says is light and easy. Let us experience that today, Lord. Through the help of your Holy Spirit, we pray.